Well, as we open God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we come to you as a group of pilgrims who are simply passing through this world. And we confess that as we travel along the path of life, we are met with many sorrows. There is much evil and difficulty that we face. And we are tripped up even by our own sins. Father, there is much that can discourage our hearts. And yet we thank you that you are the sovereign God who stands over and above it all. The one who has ordained the beginning from the end. And that truly we can look to you as our help. That you are our ever present, ever ready, ever loving Savior. So Father, as we look at your word this morning, just a small passage within your word to help us in our pilgrimage, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would soften our hearts, and that you might help us to receive what you have for us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 12. The Gospel of Luke chapter 12. As you do that, I want to begin this morning by telling you the story of a man whose life, his money, his possessions were handled in light of eternity. He had Christ as his greatest treasure, and that determined how he lived his life. His name may be familiar to some of you. His name was William Borden. He was born in 1887 into the wealthy Borden family, which started and owned the well-known Borden Dairy Company. After his mother became a believer, she began taking her children to church, and soon William confessed Christ and became a Christian as well. At the age of 16, his parents gave him the opportunity to go on a trip around the world with a missionary named Walter Erdman. Young William, as he went on this trip, was deeply impressed by what he saw around the world. He was impressed particularly with the spiritual plight of millions upon millions of people in China, in Africa, in India. People who had no witness for Christ in their own language and in their own land. And it deeply troubled him. And it was on this trip that he decided that instead of becoming a businessman and carrying on the family business, the legacy there, he would become a missionary to the unreached of the world. It was also on this trip that he wrote two words in the flyleaf of his Bible. He wrote, no reserves. No reserves. He would hold nothing back in his living for Christ. When he returned to the U.S. in 1905, he went to Yale University. He excelled in not only academics, but also athletics. And in, with his family connections, he easily could have done anything with his life. 
He had many opportunities open to him by his own skill and determination, but he remained committed to his calling to be a missionary. His father had told him that if he continued with his plans that he, uh, to be a missionary, he would never work in the family business. But this did not deter Borden. His heart was set on Christ, not on wealth and not on any sort of business venture. He pressed further into ministry even while in college. His freshman year, he gathered 150 classmates into Bible studies. And by his senior year, a thousand of the 1,300 students at Yale were attending one of these studies. As a sophomore, he established the first rescue mission in New Haven, Connecticut, to help those who were down and out. And Borden used this not only to give meals, but the gospel to lost souls. During this time, a visiting British theologian was asked what he found most impressive about America. He said, the sight of that young millionaire kneeling in prayer beside a bum at the Yale Hope Mission. Borden left an impression. But not only did Borden support the work with his time, he also purchased the building to house the chapel, hotel, and kitchen, and he was the main benefactor to its ongoing service. He used his wealth for the advance of Christ's gospel. Now, sometime during his college years, he was feeling the pressure from his family again to abandon the missionary call. And it's during this time that he wrote two more words into the flyleaf of his Bible. No retreats. No reserves, no retreats. You see, the center of gravity in Borden's life was Christ. Everything he did revolved around his commitment to Jesus, even the way he used his money, and it revealed where his heart was. Now, three weeks ago, we began looking at Jesus' teaching on money, possessions, and eternity from Luke chapter 12. And we first looked at Jesus' warning against materialism, against greed and covetousness. Then we meditated upon Jesus' prohibition against anxiety and worry. And if you missed those, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. They, they strike at so much that is pertinent for us in our 21st century American society. But this morning, we're going to continue and finish Jesus' exhortation on these important topics, money, possessions, and eternity. And we'll be challenged to see that our lives indeed are centered upon Christ and that we indeed are looking to eternity for ordering our days. So let's begin by reading our passage, Luke chapter 12. Follow along as I read. I'll be reading verses 13 to 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, 
Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his, life, his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. From this passage, we've been examining three lessons, three lessons that Jesus has for us on money, possessions, and eternity so that money might have its proper place in our hearts and lives. First, we looked, the first lesson was beware of materialism. And we saw this in verses 13 through 21. Beware of materialism, where Jesus says the life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions, recognizing that our constant clamoring for more is something that we must be always on guard in our hearts from. But then secondly, in verses 22 to 31, Jesus gave a second lesson, and that was to refrain from anxiety. Refrain from anxiety. He said that we are not to worry about what we have, about our necessities in life, because God is going to take care of us. We have a Father who knows our needs, and therefore we have no reason to be wringing our hands in fear and worry about the future. We simply need to trust our loving Father. And finally, the third lesson that Jesus will give us in verses 32 to 34 this morning is to invest in eternity. Invest in eternity. Here in these verses, he closes out his instruction on these important topics, and he does it by focusing on what we should put on. In other words, there's been two prohibitions previous to this. Beware of materialism and refrain from anxiety, but now he's turning the corner and telling us, well, then what should we do? If we're not to be worrying about our money, if we're not to be constantly clamoring for the things of this life, then what are we to be about? He gives it that, us that instruction here in verses 32 through 34. And I believe that the summation of these verses, 32 through 34, can be summarized in this way is that Jesus wants us to invest in eternity, invest in heaven. And he gives us three ways that we can do that. So we're, 
we're going to see how Jesus calls us to invest in eternity by doing three things. And the first way that we can invest in eternity is by recognizing your blessings from God. You can invest in eternity by recognizing your blessings from God. That's where Jesus begins in verse 32. Look at it with me. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus begins this exhortation here by giving a word of comfort and an encouraging word to his disciples. I can picture him after he's teaching about this against greed and covetousness and against anxiety, he pulls them in close. And he says, fear not, little flock. Fear not. As we saw a month ago now in verses 1 through 12 is that Jesus' disciples know that persecution is down the line for them. They will be pulled before tribunals. They will be brought before those uh, who are, are, have the potential to kill their soul or kill their bodies, rather. And so they're going to be targeted. Their possessions could be taken from them. In other words, they could be in this life with very little because they follow Jesus. Many of our brothers and sisters down through the centuries and even today in different parts of the world have that reality in their lives. They have very little simply because they're a follower of Jesus. But notice what Jesus says to his followers. He says, fear not, little flock. They are not to be anxious. They're not to be fearful. They're not to be worried. He says, fear not. This command to not fear is the most common command found throughout the scriptures. Do not fear. Why is it repeated over and over again? Because all of humanity, whether you live in Bible times or today, whether you live in America or some other country, we are all prone to fear. We are all prone to be anxious about what is coming. We are truly a fearful little bunch. And it's our finite, our finitude, our, our limitedness that makes us susceptible to the fear about the future. We don't know what's coming. And so we fear about what might be around the corner. Where are we going to find our food? Where are we going to find our necessities? Are we going to be cared for? And Jesus comes in and offers this word, not of rebuke, but of comfort. Don't be afraid. But notice, what does he call this group? What does he call his disciples here? He gives them a name. He says, he calls them little flock. This is the only place in the whole New Testament where Jesus calls uh, his people a little flock. And it's a, it's a precious name. This harkens back to several places in the Old Testament where God is said to be the shepherd and his people are the flock. Israel are called the sheep. No doubt you know Psalm 23, verse 1, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What also is connected with that command, by the way? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Do you see the connection between the shepherd and no fear? Jesus brings that in here in Luke 12. But elsewhere, Isaiah 40, verse 11, it says, He, God, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. See the tenderness of God with his people, the imagery of the shepherd with the sheep? Zechariah 10, verse 3 
says the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. So this is the Old Testament background of God the Father working with his people as a flock, and Jesus then pulls his disciples in and says, fear not, little flock. What he's doing is two things. Number one, he's identifying himself with the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's saying that he himself is that divine shepherd. He is the one who is able to provide that comfort and that care to his people. The one that Israel's been waiting for. But secondly, he's identifying his disciples as God's chosen people. Even though Israel as a nation is God's chosen people and he has a future for Israel... There is a flock within the flock. There is those here within Jesus' day that either believed in Jesus and followed him and found life or those that rejected Jesus. And Jesus is saying, listen, you, my flock, you, my disciples, are those who are truly followers of God. And so as he identifies his disciples, and I think by implication us as well, we are the sheep of God's pasture. And it reminds us, friends, as we are identified as sheep, that we are frail. Are we not? We are easily frightened as sheep are. Easily spooked. And yet Jesus says that we should not fear. Why? Notice the reason why he says his disciples in that day and for us today should not fear. He says, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the the kingdom. Once again, Jesus draws our attention to the Father's heart. God the Son, Jesus Christ here, is so captivated by his Father that he wants us to see the beauty of the Father. He wants us to depend upon the Father, just as Jesus, as he walked upon this earth, trusted his heavenly Father. He did everything leaning upon him. And so Jesus points us to, to the Father. He's already done that in verses 30 and 31. Look back up there with me. He says, For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. He's already let us know that the Father wants to take care of us. But here, Jesus sums it all up with this promise that is given. He says that the Father, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom, as we find from the scriptures is the future reign of Christ upon this earth. It's a time of of peace and prosperity that will come to this earth when sin is done away with. And Jesus will reign from Mount Zion in Jerusalem over all the nations with righteousness and justice. This kingdom throughout the New Testament is spoken of as an inheritance to believers. An inheritance, something that we will get and will be given to us. For example, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 34, Jesus says this. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king, that's Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's a kingdom prepared that will be inhabited in that future day. James chapter 2, verse 5, James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? A promised 
gift that will be given. And you and I are sealed with the Holy Spirit until we acquire possession of that inheritance. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14, he says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Listen, friends, God wants to, to happily give you the kingdom. This time of future blessing and peace, it's the fulfillment of all of our dreams, everything that we could hope for. We want everything to be right. It will be right in that kingdom. But included in the term kingdom here, I believe, is the blessings of knowing the king today. You and I are rightly related to the king of that kingdom. We have our citizenship in that future kingdom, and we know that we stand with Christ. And because we know Christ, we have all the blessings that are found in the gospel. Do we not? Life. Joy, salvation, righteousness, redemption, adoption, sanctification, and finally glorification promised to us in that glorious future kingdom. Friends, there has been so much that has been promised to us that has been purchased for us that is included in this gift of the kingdom. Notice that God doesn't give it to us grudgingly. God's not like, okay, yeah, I guess, here you go. And he hands it to us and walks off. Oh no, God is a, is a, is a giddy giver. He is excited and it is his pleasure to give us the greatest thing that he has, the kingdom of his son. It says that it's the, your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus doesn't want us to see a God who is, is giving stingily, but a God who is giving generously and joyfully. It's his sovereign will to give us something, friends, that we must recognize that we do not deserve. Which means that here we even see that this is the Father's grace. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. This is what the gospel tells us. This is what the Christian life is, is that everything that we have has been given to us is not because we've earned it. It's all because of the Father's good pleasure that it's been given to us. It's all because of his grace. We should be humbled by that grace. We should be delighted in that grace. We don't deserve this kingdom. We don't deserve to be given this great gift. There is nothing that we have done to earn it. The only thing that we bring to the table God says, oh yeah, what do you got? And we empty our pockets and we pull it all out, see if there's anything that God might be pleased with in our spiritual pockets. And all we put on the table is our sin and our failure. We have nothing by which to turn God's eye towards us. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so we deserve to be cast out of God's presence forever and to be, experience his wrath for all of eternity. But instead, Jesus reminds us, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God has been gracious to you. He has given you favor that you did not merit. And what we know from the rest of the New Testament is that this kingdom and our citizenship in it was made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The very one saying this, he had to give his life so that you and I could enter into that kingdom. For us to be able to know that pleasure of God, for us to be able to experience that one day, it required Jesus to hang upon the cross, 
to experience the wrath of his father. I mean, you see this, the, the father had every right to crush us in his wrath. And instead, Jesus stood in our place and took that wrath for us so that he could say this to us, so that we could experience the good pleasure of his father. It would not be possible. We could not experience the grace of God. We could not be called the flock of God. We could not have the promise of inheriting the kingdom one day without the work of Christ. So I encourage you, if you are here today and you do not have the peace of knowing where your destiny lies, of where you will spend eternity, if you do not have the confidence that you will indeed be inheriting this kingdom one day, then the offer is open and available to you for you to trust in Jesus Christ, to believe that the sacrifice that he paid upon the cross 2,000 years ago was sufficient to, to cover your sins, was sufficient to remove the wrath of God from you. If you trust and believe in him, you will have salvation and you will have the promise of knowing that this kingdom, that all of the promises that God gives are yours. And you can go home today and put your head on the pillow tonight knowing where your future lies, knowing where your eternity will be. But you must repent, turn from your sins, and trust in Jesus alone. It's not adding Jesus to your life. It's renouncing everything that we're living for apart from Christ and trusting alone in Christ for our salvation, for our future, and for our lives. The center of gravity shifts from us resting and trusting in ourselves to resting and trusting in Christ alone. So as Jesus gives us this instruction here on investing in eternity, it begins by recognizing our blessings from God. But Jesus goes on, and look at the second way that Jesus tells us that we can invest in eternity by relinquishing your possessions on earth. You can invest in eternity by relinquishing your possessions on earth. Look at the first part of verse 33. It's pretty succinct. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Now, this verse has been interpreted down through church history in a variety of ways, but many have taken it to mean that every single Christian is called to take a vow of poverty and that we should go and put everything that we own up for sale and that we should give it all away and therefore live in a state of poverty, not holding on to any worldly goods. But I don't believe that that is what Jesus wants his church to do. Jesus doesn't say to sell all possessions, nor does he say to sell them all at once. And it's important to recognize that wealth or money is not a sin. To, ve to have money, to have wealth, even a lot of money, to be rich is not in itself a sin. It's important to realize. We've been talking about the dangers of wealth and the dangers of money, but, uh, and Paul says the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, but having wealth itself is not in itself wrong or a sin. In fact, I believe God blesses many people so that they might use it for his purposes. God blesses businesses to, who are seeking to gain more money and, and, and gain in capital, but all of that is for a higher purpose. It's important also to recognize here that, that private ownership is not wrong. This is not a, a subtle 
uh, endorsement of socialism in which we all get rid of our stuff and none of us have private ownership because we're all supposed to sell our possessions. But what is Jesus getting at? I believe that there's a principle here that Jesus wants us to understand, and it's this, that we are to get rid of stuff so that we can give to others. It's that simple. These commands, sell your possessions and give to the needy, is this basic reality that we should be looking to get rid of stuff so that we can give to others. Now, how much stuff we get rid of and what stuff we get rid of is open to freedom that we must determine. There's not a set amount. There's not a certain kinds of things that we must depart from, but there should be something in our lives that enables us to be able to let go of possessions of this life and of this world so that we can be able to give more to those in need. In order for us to live for eternity, friends, in order for us to live, live for heaven, we've got to let go of our stuff here. Jesus wants our hearts to be directed towards heaven and our hearts are going to be directed where we put our money and where we direct our resources. And if all of it is poured into the here and now, into our homes and our stuff, then our hearts are going to be here. But Jesus is trying to help his disciples to recognize that our home is not here. And so we must be getting rid of relinquishing what we have. I think this is the closest thing you're going to find in the Bible uh, to a command to have a yard sale. Uh, I mean, sell your possessions. I guess you could do offer up. Um, but no, it's, it's, it helps us to think strategically. When was the last time you went through your closets, went through your garage, went through your storage units, and find things that you're like, we don't need this anymore? Now, you could give those things away. You don't necessarily have to sell it and make a profit and then give that money to somebody, but you could do that as well. There's lots of freedom in what we're to do. The main thing is, are there things that we can let go of so that we can bless others? The goal is to think about how to serve and bless other people. Notice that the intent is not just to get rid of things. Unbelievers get rid of things. They hate clutter, they sell, they have yard sales, all those sorts of things. But the intent here is with a purpose to bless other people. We get rid of things so that we can give to those in need. The purpose, in other words, is generosity, not just spring cleaning. And there's a big difference. It's a difference in motivation, and it's a difference in result, the destination of the proceeds. Just a few weekends ago, my family and I, uh, we like to go to visit yard sales, garage sales, and we visited one that was a benefit sale for orphans displaced in Ukraine. A, I don't know if they are believers. They, uh, they gave out little verse things to everyone that went to the sale. So I'm assuming that they knew the Lord. But that kind of thing is what Jesus is talking about here. You're, you're giving things away. You're finding things that you can sell in order that you can be able to bless other people. We have so much stuff. There's so much glut. We, we accumulate. We are purchasing stuff all of the time with the, the gifts that we give around Christmas time and birthdays. There's so many things that come in. There's so much that we could give away. Again, not just a spring cleaning sort of way, but a blessing others. This principle, by the way, of selling to give uh, was modeled in the early church. 
Acts chapter 4 says this. Now the number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Again, why did they sell their property? They gave it so that they could help those in need. But again, this is not an endorsement of all private ownership as being bad. There was indications even in these passages that they could hang on to their property if they wanted to. The point was to sell it and to give if that's what they intended to do. But why is it? Why is it that we have a hard time letting go of our stuff? Why is it that we have a hard time selling and giving away? Particularly in a radical sort of way. Downsizing sort of way. One pastor put it this way. He said, our anxiety gets in the way of our generosity. Our anxiety gets in the way of our generosity. Well, if I let go of that, then what am I going to do? What what if I'm going to be without that? What if I'm going to need that? I can't trim down too far because the fear kicks in. The anxiety kicks in. The fear of being without encourages hoarding, not handing over. It encourages gathering for self, not giving to others. But do you see how these verses then are connected with what came before? Jesus told us that we aren't to worry about what our necessities. We're not to worry about our daily things that we need because we have a father that knows our needs and wants to give them to us. And so we can give more away, trusting him as we seek to bless others. Do you ever wonder why God doesn't Give everyone in the church the same level of income, same level of stuff, same level of of money. Somehow in his providence, he wants there to be those that have more than others and for there to be a giving and sharing that takes place within the church as we take care of each other's needs. It requires that we who have are sharing and giving to those who need. So what can you sell? What can you give away? What can you part with that could bless somebody else? What is it that you don't need anymore? What is it maybe that you still use but you don't need and you could bless somebody? This text challenges us to think along those lines. You see, when we sell our possessions with the intent of generosity, we're not losing anything. We're not losing our money but as we generously give to others, we're actually sending it on ahead. We're redirecting it. And this leads us to our third and final way that we can invest for eternity that Jesus highlights. And that is by redirecting your treasure to heaven. By redirecting your treasure to heaven. So we invest in eternity by recognizing our blessings from God, by relinquishing our possessions on earth, and by redirecting our treasure to heaven. This is where Jesus turns In the middle half of verse 33, he says, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This highlights an important reality that we must keep in mind that everything upon this earth, 
everything that we own and we possess will fail. He says, provide money bags for yourselves that do not grow old and a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. But there is not a thing upon this earth that will not fail. There's not a thing upon this earth that will not be destroyed in some way and at some time. Of course, what Jesus says here is our, our riches can be stolen. They can uh, be uh, destroyed by rust or rot. Or like expensive clothes of the day, they could be eaten by moths. Which is why Jesus mentions the moth here. Now, even if none of these things ever happen to you, what, even if you're never robbed, your, your money never departs from you, you've collected every single dollar, none of it ever gets wasted or taken away from you, at some point, it will be taken out of your hands. Upon death, every single cent is taken from us. It, our wealth and our finances, our money here upon this earth does not provide a foundation for the future when we simply hold on to it. It does nothing for us in the long run by simply hoarding it and spending it on ourselves. When we pass from this life to the next, it'll all be ripped out of our hands. And so Jesus knows that we care about the future knows that we want to make good investments and wise investments, and so he points us to where we should be directing our money. He says that we should be directing our treasure to heaven, or directing our treasure to heaven. You see, when we direct our treasure to heaven, we're banking in a secure place. We're, we're banking in a place where the storage, the money bags he mentions, will not grow old. They won't wear out. There's no decay that's going to come to where our money is stored. The thief can't steal it. Moths can't eat it. Treasure in heaven is the best and safest investment that there is. God, the heavenly banker, never forgets or loses track of one deposit. He sees it all and keeps track of it all. Why do we direct our money to heaven? Because the principle here is this, as stated by author Randy Alcorn. He says, where we choose to store our treasures depends largely on where we think our home is. Where we choose to store our treasures depends largely on where we think our home is. Believers, where is our home? It's in heaven. That is our true home. That is where we belong. That is what we were made for. Strangely, we are living in a place that is not our final destination in the place that we were made for and that we are headed towards, we haven't even visited yet. We haven't made it home. But the Bible says that our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20, and that we're pilgrims and exiles here. We're simply passing through Hebrews 11 and 1 Peter 1. Our permanent residence is in heaven, not on earth. This is not our home, and so we should be investing in heaven. Same author, Randy Alcorn, I, I recommended his books a few weeks ago. Recommend them to you again today. He illustrates it this way. He says, suppose your home is in France and you're visiting America for three months living in a hotel. You're told that you can't bring anything back to France on your flight home, but you can earn money 
and mail deposits to your bank in France? Would you fill your hotel room with expensive furniture and wall hangings? Of course not, he says. You'd spend your money where your home is. You would spend only what you needed on the temporary residence, sending your treasures ahead so they'd be waiting for you when you got home. Where we invest our money depends on where we see home is. And friends, this world is fading away. Consider if, you're a re- if you were living during the time of the Civil War and you were living in the South and yet you were residents of the, a resident of the North. You knew that the war was coming to an end soon and the North would win and yet you had tons of con- the Confederate currency. What would you do if you knew that the war was going to end soon and the North was going to win? You do all you can to convert it to the northern currency and send it on ahead of you to the north. That illustrates the reality of this present life and eternity. We know this world is coming to an end. We know that everything that we have is going to ultimately be dust and worthless. And so therefore, Jesus encourages us to invest where it cannot fail, to send our treasure to the heavens. Now, obviously, we can't put cash in an envelope put it in the post office, take it to the post office and send our money to heaven. So how do we do this? How do we see that our treasure is in the heavens? I want to direct you to 1 Timothy chapter 6 to help us with this. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I believe Paul here, in the inspiration of the Spirit, is, has Jesus' teaching from Luke 12 and the parallel in Matthew 6 on his mind as he writes to Timothy and to the church that he's leading. We're going to see echoes of Jesus' teaching in Paul's own words here. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at verses 17 through 19. Paul says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now notice the five instructions to the rich in this present age. Two are prohibitions and three are positive instructions. First, don't be haughty. Don't be boastful. Don't find your, your boast in all that you have. Secondly, don't set your hopes on riches. Don't set your hopes for the future on what you've accumulated. Notice what he calls them, the uncertainty of riches. They can be taken from you as quickly as they were given to you. But he also note what it says, that God has provided us with everything to enjoy. This is not a disdain of the present life and that we can't enjoy anything. Okay, so don't hear what I'm saying and saying that we need to absolutely hate our lives and can't enjoy a single thing. No, that God has given us much to enjoy, but we do it in light of eternity and where our ultimate home is. So the two prohibitions, don't be haughty and don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but then he turns in 
verse 18 to give us three positive instructions. He says, to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. In other words, Paul, I believe here, interpreting Jesus' words, understands that we don't trust in our riches and we don't take pride in our riches, but instead we look to do good with our riches. We look to be, gen to be generous and to share. And as we do that, we build a foundation for the future. What kind of future? A heavenly future. A good foundation for that future home that we will be inhabiting. And in doing that, we take hold of what is truly life. What is truly life, what is life indeed in the here and now and in the day to come. Notice those two ages are there. He talks about this present life and then talks about the future. The future is that which is beyond this pre present life, our final home in heaven. And so as we live for God's priorities, as we seek to bless others with our finances, with our riches, we are taking hold of that which is truly life. We are finding the good life that God wants for us. Friends, this world tells us that the good life is gaining money for ourselves and spending it on ourselves. The Bible's message is diametrically opposed to that. That the good life is found in giving and blessing, in loving others. Because in doing that, we show our love for God. It's strange but it's the way God set it up. The more that we give away, the happier we are. The more generous we are, the more joy that comes to us. So I believe that what Paul and Jesus want us to do is to use our money that aligns with the priorities of heaven. We are to use our money in a way that reflects God's priorities, and that's primarily in giving it away and and being generous and sharing it with others. And so practically speaking, I believe that God wants us to be looking for opportunities, to be looking for ways that we can be giving away what we have. And as we do that, it will result in praise to God's name. We do this not to gain accolades to ourselves. We do it to bless other people. And so there are two broad categories that I believe that the Christian, every Christian must consider when it comes to generosity. And again, these are two broad categories. The first is giving to the church, and the second is to others as we have opportunity. The church and others as we have opportunity. First, let me address giving to the church. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. An Old Testament principle rooted in agricultural society, but the principle is clear. We're to honor the Lord with our wealth, setting aside a certain amount of first fruits, he says, as we honor the Lord. Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 16, where he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And then in a, a le later letter to the same church, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
Friends, God calls us as believers to contribute to the work of the gospel through the local church. The church is God's institution. There is no other organization or institution that God has set up upon earth. This is Christ's creation, not anything else. There are many other organizations that help in that task, but the church is central in God's plans and priorities. And this is where we should be directing our gifts. Again, I quote one more time from Randy Alcorn. He, he gives 11 principles for the Christian giver, and I'll just give them to you rapid fire uh, that for you to meditate upon. He says the first biblical principle is we are to give. We are to give. Secondly, we're to give generously. Thirdly, give regularly. Fourth, give deliberately. Setting aside, Paul says, being clear of what we're going to give, not being haphazard or on a whim. We're to give voluntarily, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, no hand upon our back, no arm twisted. We're to give willingly and voluntarily. We're to give sacrificially. We are to give, number seven, excellently. He says it's a skill that we should try to excel in in our giving, not have it be this secondhand discipline that we kind of do some things. We should give excellently. We should also, number eight, give cheerfully. We should put a smile upon our face. We should give worshipfully because ultimately this is part of our worship to the Lord. We should give proportionately. Each of us are going to give different amounts. The amount's not the issue. Number 11, give quietly. It's not to be fanfare. It's not to be something that we gain accolades for others to see our giving. It's simply to be something that we give quietly before the Lord. All these points direct us to this principle that Christ's people further Christ's work by giving to his bride, the church. And we give to the church, we give it to God's work as we take care of needs locally, spiritually and physically within our church, and physically and spiritually through our missionaries around the world. We want to see the gospel go forward. We want to see the lost reached. And so we fund those efforts. Now, contrary to popular belief, there is no command in the New Testament for Christians to tithe. Tithe can be a fine Christian discipline and practice to do, but in terms of, of a, a command that says every Christian must tithe, therefore give 10% of their income, there is no biblical command to that. But that isn't to say that tithing is wrong. In fact, it can be a great practice to set aside as a benchmark that we're going to give 10% of our income. Unfortunately, many of those who claim that there is no command for the tithe in the New Testament often give less than the tithe. But the emphasis in the New Testament, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 9, is to give what each of us has decided in our heart before the Lord. It's to be motivated by obligation? No. By seeking to gain accolades? No. It's to be motivated by the generosity of God. We can't outgive God. God has already given so much to us. Didn't we see that? Father, he said, little flock, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We've already been given so much so we can give so much away. So this is a check. Are you giving, checking on our hearts? Are you giving to the church? Are you honoring the Lord with the wealth that he's given to you? This is, the church is bigger than any one of us. This isn't the elders church, this isn't our church, this is Christ's church. And we're looking to further his work. And that's why we, we give it to his work here at Foothill Bible Church. If you're not giving, you're missing out on what the blessing that God has intended for you. But first I talked about giving to the church. Let me briefly now mention giving to opportunities. Paul says that we're to do good to all and 
as we have opportunity, especially to the household of faith. There's a priority of the household of faith, but then we're freed up with our, the rest of our finances to be able to give to those needs that we have, needs in our friends, our families, our coworkers, needs around the world. And as we, these needs arise, we can position ourselves to meet those needs and therefore be seeking to put our treasure in heaven, laying up our treasure in heaven. There's a thousand ways that this could look. This could be you helping a friend pay a medical bill. This could be you contributing to one of the many great gospel uh, organizations and parachurch ministries that are seeking to get the gospel to those around the world and help the hurting and suffering that are in the world. It could be you seeking to uh, provide food to the hungry. There's so many things that are, that are out there. One of the urgent needs right now are brothers and sisters in Ukraine. And there are those who have been displaced from Ukraine, the Ukrainians that aren't even able to be in Ukraine. And there's a great way for us to be able to give out of the wealth that we have to be able to help those in Ukraine, particularly those Christians that are hurting, that are displaced, that are separated from their family. And there's huge evangelistic opportunities for Ukraine and those who have been displaced as they spread into all of Europe. And we have some organizations that we know of that are reputable. If you're interested, please contact us and we'd love to be able to help you to be able to support those causes. Friends, either your money will be taken from you at death or given away. Before, either it will be taken from you at death or it can be given away by you before death. And Jesus is teaching us, his disciples, to give it away so that our hearts will be drawn in the right direction. Isn't that where Jesus directed us, directs us in verse 34? Where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. Wherever we are putting our money is where our heart is going to be. And Jesus wants us to look for our money to be going to heaven as we give it away to others and that we would be living for the next world, not for this one. And so I ask you, are you investing in eternity? Are you steering your heart to Christ and his priorities by directing your treasure to heaven? Are you willing to let go of the transitory treasures of this life so you'll gain everlasting treasures in the heavenly kingdom? I began this morning by telling about William Borden of Yale. Let me pick up the story where he left off. He had set his heart on the mission field. He desired to reach Muslims in China, and so when he graduated from college and seminary, he set sail for Cairo, Egypt, in order to first learn Arabic. But after only a few months in Egypt, he, spot, he caught spinal meningitis and died on April 9th, 1913, at the age of 25. He never made it to China. His personal belongings were shipped back to his parents in the United States, and as they leafed through their son's Bible, they found the words that he had penned earlier. No reserves. No retreats. But they also found a final declaration written by William on his deathbed. He had written, no regrets. No regrets. Upon his death, he had written in his will for his wealth to be distributed to many Christian organizations, such as the church and mission agencies, only God knows the impact of this young man who stored up his treasures in heaven instead of earth. Today, his tombstone sits in a walled cemetery in Cairo, Egypt. By the world's standard, this man's life was a waste. But according to Christ, he lived for another world. He invested in eternity. On his tombstone reads the line, Apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Friends, we are not all called to go overseas. We're not all called to give up business ventures to be missionaries. But we are all called to invest in eternity, to give our time, our talent, and our treasure 
to bless and evangelize other people for God's glory? Are you investing in eternity in such a way that your tombstone can read, apart from Christ, there's no explanation for such a life? I pray we all, by the Spirit's power, are able to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning and for the opportunity we've had to look at your word. I pray that you would please allow the teaching of Jesus to sit upon our hearts, that we would desire to invest in eternity, to live for another world and not for this one. Father, the clutches of our stuff and our possessions and our comforts and all these things cling so tightly. And I pray that you would help us to relinquish them, to be able to see that our, there's greater treasure in heaven. We thank you for your love for us, and I pray that you would direct our hearts in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.